Revelation 21, 22, after 12 weeks, you have been flown through the book of Revelation, maybe at a faster speed than you've ever wanted. But here we pick up after all these years of sin, all the years of history, the flood, the judges, the failing kings, the mob that killed Christ, over 2,000 years since Calvary. We come to Revelation, what God does in a seven-year period to devastate the earth with divine judgment upon the nations. By this time, Satan has been thrown into the lake of fire. The Antichrist has been uh, taken down, thrown in the lake of fire. And we come to chapter 21, and listen to what he says now. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. He begins a description in verse 9 that runs down to 21, describing what the new Jerusalem will look like that comes out of the heavens. He picks up in verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Look at verse 7. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Then let us go to verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon. 
bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I entitled this Paradise Lost, Paradise Found. It's an amazing thing when you read the book of Genesis. I don't know how long Adam and Eve were in paradise. We have no record of it. But to imagine that at one time our parents lived where there was no sin, uh, no shame, no guilt, everything was perfect, everything was superlative, and yet we were seduced by the lie that we could become our own gods. And in that seduction, our parents ate the fruit for the gamble. I can become God and I won't die. And God said, you will die. And in one day, paradise was forever lost to the human race. In one day, we were exiled from God, granted no access to the tree of life, for he put two guardian angels there to keep Adam and Eve from it. Running out of the garment, running out of the garden with these garments God made us, and start our weeping and wailing by Genesis 4, burying sons, pain, pain, by chapter 8 and 9 of Genesis, God destroys the entire human race except for eight people. We start all over again, but Noah barely gets off the ark until he's seduced by two of his daughters, commits incest, and they have the two sons, Moab and Ammon. By chapter 11, we're building a tower to Babel. God comes down, confuses all languages, scatters the nations. God starts all over again with one man named Abram. Calls him out of being a moon worshiper and idolatry in Babylon. Thus the journey starts, but then the judges of Israel came, corrupt. The kings came. One king after another failed, failed, failed. The nation goes into exile. Assyria invades the northern tribes, 606. Then Babylon invades uh, Jerusalem, 586 B.C. The prophets are warning Israel, you've abandoned God. On and on and on. Then Messiah shows up, and instead of the race throwing a universal party, 
a death warrant is put out from the moment they hear he's born and Herod's killing every child under the age of two. And now nearly 2,000 years later, is Christ any more wanted? Are we any closer to paradise than we were then? It seems like it doesn't even exist. And sometimes when we talk about heaven and we look at this passage, uh, have you ever heard this line? He's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. Have you ever heard that? Let me read you a quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who do, did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all that left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will need, get neither. Until you learn to do what Colossians said, set your frame of thinking on things above where Christ, who is your life, is, and put to death the deeds of the body on the earth, getting our mind on things above. So what we want to do in this overview is look at the new things that he's going to create in the future. There's going to be a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. Notice what he says. The first heavens and the first earth pass away. Now, how's that going to happen? Well, Peter said it will take place by fire. There's two views about the earth. Some say the earth will simply be renovated, uh, regenerated, uh, that this globe that we're on will not be burned up and cremated and incinerated, as I've always been taught and thought to believe, one way or the other. He's either going to purge it, cleanse it, or he's going to melt it. Renovation by fire, one way or the other, whether it's cremated and he makes a brand new heaven, or if he takes the earth that is, renovates it, cleanses us, but he not only does it to the earth, he does it to the heavens. So when he gets through, there's no stars, there'll be no more moon, there'll be no more sun, the universe will cease to exist. We have many psalms that say, he will roll up the heavens like a scroll. How do you do that? Only God can and only God knows how. But he's just going to roll it up. He said, don't need you anymore, stars. See you, Mars. See you, Pluto. See, we don't need you anymore. And he's going to have a brand new earth and a brand new heaven, and out of this heaven comes a city called the New Jerusalem. It's interesting, and he calls it the bride, the wife of the Lamb. You remember what he called Babylon? He called Babylon the great harlot. The false religious systems of the earth 
he calls it an immoral woman for sale. But the Lamb's wife, the new Jerusalem, is like the Lamb's wife of all the saints, of all the ages coming back will occupy a new city. And that city's described. Its gates are named after the 12 sons of Jacob. The foundations are named after the 12 apostles of the Lamb. He gives the dimensions of it. You want to get an idea what the new Jerusalem is like? It's going to be a 1,500-mile square. Not square, cube, really. It's going to be uh, 1,500 miles wide, depth, and up. So that I looked up a description. Uh, one description of it was given so that these would be the dimensions of what the city, uh, 1,500 miles long, wide, deep. It contains 3.3 billion square feet. How big is that? If you took and made a footprint of a city, you would start in Miami, go up to Maine, go west to Minneapolis, and then back to Houston. That would be basically the first floor of the New Jerusalem. That's about a 1,500-mile dimension. It's Miami to Maine, Minneapolis, Houston, approximately 1,500 miles, and then go up 1,500 miles and go out 1,500 miles, you have a literal continent that will come out of the heaven and will come down and most likely either settle on the earth. It will be the eternal capital city of all the saints. Some believe it hovers over the earth. Some believe it settles on the earth. But this huge, huge city that Jesus said, Behold, I go and prepare a place for you so that where I am for eternity, you're going to dwell with me in that place. This is just the city, brand new heavens, because the heavens are dirty in God's mind because it's where demonic spirits traffic all the time. The heavens are where fallen angels and good angels traffic. The earth has been corrupted has been cursed. So everything starts over new. And what will be in the city? He said the glory of God will shine. Over and over, chapter 21, verse 11. Notice what he says there. He says, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, and they believe that is diamond, clear as crystal. High walls, the names of these people. And he begins to describe what it's made of. And on and on. One thing that will be on display forever is the glory of God. Let me ask you what Romans says. Romans 1 says that mankind has suppressed the glory of God so that it can, cannot be seen. He said, they suppress what may be known about God. God is in a suppression environment in the world. We don't want people to believe in God. <clears throat> we don't want them to think God created. 
We don't want people to think God's there, that he's involved. We want to become like deists, like a Benjamin Franklin in these. God, God made the creation, the natural order, then he walked off. Thomas Paine's view of God. He's, he's out. He's no longer involved in human affairs. Well, in that city, God will never be suppressed. He will be on total display in radiance, and we will actually, as you read the passage, it sounds to me like we will get to see the Father as well as the Son. That is amazing. Some manifestation of the Father is going to be there that you'll say, I've seen the face of God. And you had to get a glorified body for that to happen. You'll have to be glorified. You can't see him in your natural body and live. But there, it sounds like we see the Lamb as well as the Father. What a day to finally see the one who saved you and loved you and that you feared you would be judged by who's now become your Father through Christ. He goes on to say, in this city, the Father and the Lamb. Look at verse 21, 22 to just kind of justify some of these remarks. Look at, uh, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty. Now, that's God the Father and the Lamb. I saw. Isn't that interesting? We won't have a temple in the New Jerusalem. Uh, would you like to hear what will be missing in the city? Let me, let me tell you 12 things that will not be there. 12 things. You've got your notes there, so you're informed. You're educated beyond your obedience. Look at this. He said, number one, there'll be no more sea. Uh, it's interesting that some people say, how did we ever get salt water? Men like Henry Morris and others say salt water became a curse. You know, to be surrounded, two-thirds of the earth is covered by water. To be surrounded by a liquid that can never quench your thirst is an amazing thing. Two-thirds of the, and here even when California is having a drought, where, with the Pacific Ocean, is there enough? That's all cursed as far as the salt. Can't sustain human life. And John, he's 90 miles approximately off of Asia Minor on a windswept uh, island where they expect him to either starve to death or to be killed by the elements. And he said, in this new land, there won't be any sea. The sea in ancient times was always seen as a beast, a monster, a threat because of, think of navigating those waters without a compass, without any power, no more, no more sea. He said there be no more tears. Verse 4, 21-4. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, that verse used to bother me. I thought, you mean when we get there, we're going to be crying and, and we'll need God for Kleenex? No, what, what the idea is he's going to remove all cause of earthly tears in the sense of sorrow, not tears of joy. Uh, I, I cry over a lot of things. Uh, man, I could see that uh, underboss and cry. 
Anybody ever see Undercover Boss? Come on. You're all hard-hearted. What do you feel like when that guy starts giving them all these gifts, these hard-working laborers and people never thought their job? Then I was like, I want to help educate your child. I want to put them through college. Carolyn looks over at me. (laughs) I can't take it. Just being good. Anytime people give, it moves me. But he said, there'll be no more cause of the tears that come from sorrow. Did you know that over 100,000 people will die today? Over 100,000. All of life is going to the cemetery. The race is burying their dead constantly, constantly. And there's a lot of tears, a lot of tears. There's people weeping today. They just heard their son was killed in an auto accident. They just heard a boy was shot. A girl was killed. This race is a race of tears, a race of tears. He goes on, verse 4, there'll be no more death. Uh, Just think of it. No more funeral homes. No hospitals, no abortion clinics, no divorce courts, no brothels, no bankruptcy courts, no psychiatric wards, no treatment centers. There'll be no pornography, no dial porn, no teen suicide, no AIDS, no cancer, no talk shows, no rape, no missing children, no drug problems, no drive-by shootings, no racial tension, prejudice, there'll be no misunderstandings, no injustice, no depression, no hurtful words, no gossip, no hurt feelings, no worry, no emptiness, and no child abuse, no more wars, financial worries, no emotional heartaches, no physical pain, no spiritual flatness, no relational divisions, no murders, and no casseroles. There'll be no tears, no suffering, no separations, no starvation, no arguments, no accident, no emergency departments, no doctors, no nurses, no heart monitors, no rust, no perplexing questions, no false teacher, no financial shortages, no hurricanes, no bad habits, no decay, and no locks. We will never need to confess sin, never need to apologize again, never need to straighten out a strained relationship, never have to resist Satan again, never have to resist temptation, never. It'll be the land of no more. No more, no more. Some of you said, well, that's nice. Wow. Get, get a loved one in the ICU ward, dying with cancer, and then me tell you, said, would you like to go to a place? There'll be no more cancer, no more death. There'll be no more mourning, verse 4. He goes on to say there's no more crying. Because joy would be the one emotion. There would be no sadness in eternity for the believer. No more sadness. Uh, I'm sorry, blues singers. You'll be out of job in eternity. No blues. No, no blue Mondays. No more thirst, he said. It's amazing that Christ screamed from the cross, I thirst. And that I thirst was a cosmic cry of humanity. It was more 
than the thirst for water. It was the thirst of the deer that panted. And the pant was likened to thirsting to know the living God, not just to get a drink, but to get something that could satisfy the soul thirst. That will be quenched. 21.8, there'll be no more wickedness, no more temple. Just think of the temple or the tabernacle. Um, you got to go, if you had a high priest, he could go in there one day a year for probably no more than two hours and hopefully would come out alive to have come in contact face-to-face -face with God's glory. In this place, you'll be in constant contact with the Father and the Son. You won't need a place of worship. You'll be in the place. You'll be with those we worship. No more night. You know, we're all spoiled. Any of you ever live where there's no city lights or, let's say, street lights? Have you ever been there? You ever gone to a, a two-thirds world? Ever drive out there? I, I remember going to Haiti uh, in the 60s, and uh, Duvalier in those days always turned out the lights every night because no one paid the bill. It, it, it's really different being on the road where there's absolutely no light. And in the ancient world, they were always afraid of the dark. There was, light was hard to come by. And he said, forever, 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 you'll never see another night. You will never see a shadow in eternity with Christ. No, I like that. I yell at these guys when they dim the lights too much on me. So I'm a light person. Turn up the lights. I hope they don't do it right now. But he said, there just won't be any night. No more closed gates. The gates are always open. 22.3, there'll be no more curse because death will be forever behind us. The city of the no mores. Who goes to the city? Well, Hebrews states, it's all those people, both Old and New Testament, who have found faith in the God of Jesus Christ, in the person of God, in the promises of God, all the entrance required is to come to know this God. And you come to know him by, first of all, admitting that he is and being willing to trust what he has said about himself. That's all God says. Would you believe what I have said about myself and about my son? Will you believe? He said, no, I don't want to. Okay, he, he made us so we can say no. All he asks is that we say yes, and he'll give us a gift. If we're believing, is this simple? If you'll believe me, I'll give you the gift of my son. Is that true, what I just said? If you believe me, I'll give you my son. If you don't believe me, I won't give you my son. But my son is going to prepare a place for people who know him, want him, love him. And there's another place where people don't love him, don't want him, and they won't be bothered by him. There's only one or two choices. The choice is up to you. And so that's, 
That's up to every man, woman, boy, and girl. It scares me. God, why did you make us so we could make choices? That's why I like to be a Calvinist. They're predetermined. Well, it's both. You got a choice to make, and you'll never know if you've been chosen by God or not. The only way you'll know is if you choose him. Then you'll know. Until you want Christ, you'll never know the plan God has for you. Why don't you take Christ? That's the plan. Well, this crowd is such a quiet crowd. I, don't, I at least get amen in the second service. Okay. Uh, look at the 21.8. He does something that's uh, unusual in a way. He names nine categories of lifestyle that represents those that will not be in heaven. Eight. Now, you've got to know this. All of us have sinned. All of us have come short of the glory of God. He's not saying that if you are, have, have ever done one of these sins or if you're in that category now that you can't be saved, but if you die in this category, it would be proof by lifestyle that you're not going to heaven. And he says, let me tell you what won't be there. The no mores, the believers will be there, and now he tells you the kinds of people, he names them out, that will not be there. 21.8, let's look at it. But as for the cowardly, now, wow, what does that mean? Anybody cowardly here? Have you ever been afraid? Why, sure, sure. You know, it's like at my house. I mean, my wife hears everything. Are there any wives here that I've been trying to get my wife a security job? <laughs> She'll say to me, did you hear that? No, I didn't. And she said, I finally said, let's do it this way. Whoever hears it checks it out. <laughs> if I don't hear it, how can I check it out? We've got these LED lights in our front room, and she can hear them. She said, do you hear that? What? She hears. Okay. But cowardly, we've all, there's some things you better be afraid of. Storms live in the Midwest. You better be afraid of tornadoes. You better get into a shelter. You California people don't know a thing about it, but you better. When I visit the Howard place, the shelter is still there that my grandfather built for himself and his 10 children. You go to the shelter. It's the only thing left. The first thing they built was not the house. It was the shelter. But this is being cowardly about Christ. Giving up that you know Christ, maybe under persecution, they denounce the fact they would not claim they knew Christ in this world. That's the cowardly he's most likely addressing. He goes on to say they're unbelievers. They would not choose to take Christ. They, they just said, no, I refuse to believe. I refuse to believe God's telling me the truth. Okay. They will be corrupt, and that is they live uh, polluted, impure lives. They're corrupted. They're just, uh, there's a moral bent to them uh, that's twisted. He goes up, they're murderers. Uh, 
And, and are we not being loaded in our papers? I mean, this latest killing in the mall up in Washington. Uh, anymore, it's not I just killed a person, but I went down and shot out a bunch of people. Murder seems to be in. It seems we, we know how to fix up a 12-year-old kid, walk him into a crowd, and blow him up. We want to take out a whole bunch of people at once. Murder is in, big time. So now I just got mad because you beat me up and everything. I want to get revenge. That's bad enough. But no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on a shooting spree. You like to kill people? They won't be in this city. Killers will not be there. You're going to say, but I've killed people. Did you ever go to the Lamb of God for forgiveness? If you didn't, you won't be in this city. He tells who they are. The immoral will not be there. Well, man, now you're messing. Don't talk about my moral life. That's no one's business. Well, it's not really unless you're God. Unless you're God. You know, California said it's none of the parents' business, your kid's sex life. You have to have parental permission for your kid to get an immunization shot. But if they come and they want testosterone or estrogen for a sex change, or if they get an abortion, you are not allowed to tell the parent. But if you're going to get them a flu shot, they have to have parental consent. But not for an abortion. Not to give them different drugs, because a lot of them now are taking drugs to be, the man wants to be a woman, so they give them estrogen. And you don't have, the parents are not to know. We must protect the privacy of the youth. We're, we're a messed up, crazy state and people. And that's the rule. That is, you mean, I do not know that my girl has just given up a baby and I'm not even to be informed. Well, sexually immoral, what does that mean biblically? Sexual immorality, biblically, is any sex outside of a monogamous, one person, heterosexual relationship. It's not monogamous with a person of the same gender. God said man, woman, for life, sex in this boundary, blessed. Sex outside of it, bestiality, homosexuality, child, all of that. Right here, man and woman in marriage, there's the boundaries. Anything outside of that? I just read an article in West County Times yesterday that they're put, that we got, uh, you'll be voting here in November a new proposition on how to protect the sex trade in California. Did you read the article? It's there. And the, the final statement of a gal in talking about all the prostitutes they have in their employment says, we don't do this thing for pleasure. We do it for business, and we don't want California telling us how to do business. Just keep you informed on the sex trade. 
front page of West County Times. Goes on to say, sorcerers. Now, here's the word for sorcery. See if this sounds familiar. And no pharmakia. Thank you. Pharmacy, pharmakia, nothing that is using drugs in demonism, witchcraft, but the idea, the word here is pharmakia, no drug-induced experiences. Those who are living on the drugs, what did he say? They won't be there. Um, and then he said idolaters. Uh, did you know men would rather worship a snake than the true and living God? If you've seen pictures on India and the worship of the cobra, have you ever seen them kiss the head of a cobra? Seen that? Worship a rock, a stick, anything. They've replaced the true God with images, according to Romans 1. They worship things made in their own image. And then Paul goes over to Colossians 3, 5, and he says, by the way, idolatry, idolatry, which is covetousness. And covetousness is simply a strong Greek word that says, I desire it strongly, I desire it, and it doesn't name an idol in particular. It's used of money, uh, sexual loss, anything I desire, 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 more than the true and living God, I'm an idolater. And that's where we always get these exhortations from Edwin about money. You know, many, we got many people in this church, they don't give $100 a year because primarily they're probably idolaters or broke. And I don't know if they're broke, but I know you can put your money everywhere. That you'll put your money in what you love. You've always got money for what you love. Can I hear an amen? amen. Oh, yeah. You can afford it if you've got to have it. And guess who spends the most money in a marriage? Men, it's been proven. They buy larger items. They get mad at the wife because she buys clothes, but all of her clothes don't add up to three of his rifles. <laughs> Let's keep moving. This is convicting. <laughs> but that's what they say. I, I'm surprised. I used to get mad at Carolyn because she needed grocery money. <laughs> you know, can't you budget better? Uh, Liars, those who habitually deceive and mislead. Uh, and all of you were born liars, the whole human race. I mean, when I had my five-year-old grandson, when I asked him, uh, do you ever sin? He said, yeah. I said, what is it, AJ? He said, I lie. I said, welcome. You learned it from your grandpa. <laughs> we're born liars by birth. How else does a five-year-old survive spanking? You've got to learn to lie. The only thing is, when they get caught and you're raised like me, you get two spankings. See, we're messed up. But 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, the people I saved were immoral, idolaters, homosexual. They were all these things, but I washed them, I cleansed them, but uh, if you die with this as your practice, a believer can commit any of these sins. But if it's your lifestyle, if it's your 
habitual practice. That's the language in Scripture, not an incident, but a lifestyle of it. He says, you won't be in this city. You will have missed it. Well, I love how the book ends. In verse 17, he says, the spirit, the bride, and the hearers of this message. That would be uh, the spirit, the bride, church, and then particularly the, the audience, the Christians who heard the book of Revelation. All three are saying at the end of the book, come, come. It's an astounding message to me. He said, I'm coming quickly. I'm coming quickly. I'm coming soon. Nothing will prevent me. When I'm ready, I will be quick and sudden. But I'm asking you, come. Wait, wait, what else can I do? You can run. You can hide. You can run from the living God. They try to hide from this God by asking the rocks and mountains to fall on them. And there's something about sin that never makes you want to come to God, but hide from God, run from God. Jonah, when he didn't want to obey God, he ran from God. He ran. And when the prodigal wants to do his own thing, he runs from home. Run. When Adam and Eve in the garden are guilty and they know they're found out, they're running, hiding. Hiding, hiding. Sin makes you run. God's voice has come. Come together. Let's reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Come. You know, wouldn't you think at the end of the book and after nearly 2,000 years, God would say, get out of my sight. I've said enough. I've waited long enough. Get out of here. No, he says, world, everyone who hears how it's all going to end, heaven and hell, come. I want you. I want you. This is what happens to those who don't want me, but I want you. I want you. And John 3.16 says it better than any verse, one verse in all the Bible. And I see four C's in it. The cause of my salvation. God so loved me. That God so loves you, he wants you to come. And then the cost of your salvation is that he gave his only one of its kind of son. I gave my son. The condition that whosoever believeth, that whosoever believeth in him, and then the consequences shall not perish, but have eternal life. Four C's, cause of my salvation, God's love. The cost of it, his beloved son. Condition, believe. Believe God. Consequences shall not perish. There's an epitaph in an Indiana graveyard, and the tombstone is over 100 years old, and they've written the following epitaph on it. It goes this way. Pause, stranger, when you pass me by. As you are now, so once was I. 
as I am now, so you will be. So prepare for death and follow me. An unknown passerby scratched these additional words on the tombstone, still there in Indiana. To follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. <laughs> and so whoever you're following, you better be sure which way they went. I have to say, I, uh, I miss songs about heaven. I hear no one sing songs. That's why Deborah sang uh, Jesus while outside them all. We used to sing that all the time. Or this is what heaven means to me. Or we used to sing a song, uh, how beautiful heaven must be. Sweet home of the blessed and free. Fair haven of rest for the weary. How beautiful heaven must be. Wow, my people. I was always under conviction when the Howards were burying loved ones because I was going to hell and they were singing about heaven. They would sing, I'll meet you in the morning inside the eastern gate. And my dad's sisters would get happy. And they'd shout about it. I'm going to see mama. I'm going to see daddy. And I thought, they act like they've been there. They act like it exists. That it's not pie in the sky, but it's a city, a 1,500-mile cube that's going to come out of the heavens, the capital city of eternity, and there with saints, angels, God the Father, God the Son, forever no night, forever no tiredness, forever no sickness, forever no, no crime, no sin, forever locked in for eternity. Wow. You got this by just taking Christ? Are you sure you're going to heaven? I hope you are. Are you going to? The next question is, do you want to go? Do you want to go? What if I told you you'd have to come through Jesus? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And do you know when Jesus said that? In John 14, 1 through 3, he said, in my, Stop your grieving. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am you may be. Then Philip said, Oh, Lord, uh, so is the Father, and we would believe in you. Philip, have I been so long with you, and you still wanted to see the Father? Verse 6, I just told about heaven. He said, By the way, I am the way that gets you to the city. I am the truth that gets you in the city. I am the life that gets you into the city. I'm the only entrance. All it takes to go to heaven is take Jesus. Our Father, we thank you. I pray save. If there happens to be anyone here unsaved, may they choose to want Christ. You will not turn them away. It's you. It's you, the church, the bride, your people that are saying, come to him, come to him, come to him. He won't turn you away. Come, come, come. God bless you.
We'll see you next week, 10 o'clock, and come. Have a great time.